Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel. And today we're talking with Shiri Noy about her book, Banking on Health, the World Bank and Health Sector Reform in Latin America. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. So to get us started, do you mind telling us about yourself? Um, So I am a political and development um, sociologist in training. Um, I graduated from Indiana University with my PhD in 2013. And my research um, has kind of two primary strains, um, and the one that the book is based on is uh, really looking at um, social policy reform in developing countries. Um, And so the book is based primarily on uh, dissertation research and then um, subsequent research uh, in the World Bank um, archives and really... um, ties together this kind of interest that I have in globalization and global governance and institutions and then um, social policies in this um, particular case, health policy in Latin America. Great. Thank you. So you sort of mentioned it developed out of your dissertation, but can you sort of take us through the process of how the book came about for you? Yeah. So um, I think in some ways, uh, my process is a little different from um, other sociologists that I know that have written books. I uh, come from an, a department that um, primarily had scholars that produce um, kind of peer-reviewed articles. And so it wasn't a, a kind of heavy book department, I would call it. And when I wrote the dissertation, uh, I thought that um, I may want to turn it into a book, but I wasn't um, kind of 100% sure. And what ended up cementing my decision to, to write it up as a book is that it's a really kind of... Um, methodologically kind of diverse um, project. And so I draw on interview data and archival data and a lot of cross-section time series um, models. Um, So using kind of quantitative regional data for Latin America and the Caribbean. And so I was finding that um, I had this big argument that I wanted to make, and I was unable to make that argument in the format of an article, um, primarily because of the disparate kind of, um, I guess, not just data sources, but also kind of the three countries. Um, And so I thought it was really important to write a book that kind of married the quantitative regional analyses and then the um, country-specific case studies to make Um, the argument that I make in the book. So, um, and in terms of uh, the the kind of process, so I spent um, 2011, most 2011, um, thanks to an NSF dissertation improvement grant and some monies from Indiana um, sociology uh, doing my field research. So I spent about three um, months uh, each in Argentina, Costa Rica, and Peru. um, And then I kind of realized that I wanted more on the World Bank beyond the interviews I had done in the countries and the kind of quantitative and document analysis and visited the World Bank archives in 2015 um, before uh, kind of sitting down to write the full book manuscript. 
That's really cool. Um, actually, this kind of goes into your appendix, but for you just sort of as a researcher, I'm just kind of curious what it was like to work with all those different um, sets of data, right? So like you've got the interviews and you've got the policy documents that you went through as well as the quantitative analysis. So, I mean, when you were doing it, was there anything that you were like, yes, this goes along with that and, and just kind of how that process went for you? Yeah. So I think um, I was really lucky to come um, from a, a department and I guess in particular um, a committee. So kind of my, my training as a sociologist uh, was really kind of heavily centered on the idea that um, all data um, are valuable um, as long as they're connected collected kind of validly and reliably, um, and that really your research question should drive um, the type of data that you want to collect. Um, and so um, even though the training, uh, my training was primarily kind of quantitative um, to begin with, and that's kind of how the project began, I found myself asking kind of how and why questions um, in terms of how um, the World Bank was involved in health um, sector reform in Latin America. And those were um, questions that I just couldn't answer with the kind of um, cross-national, public and private and overall kind of health spending data that I um, had been looking at. So I wrote um, a paper in 2011 that looked at um, kind of testing classic welfare state um, theories in the Latin American context in the International Journal of Comparative Sociology. And it also looked at health as a kind of particular domain um, of welfare states. And I found that the World um, Bank, like kind of presence of World Bank personnel, and, and, I, am, and I looked at kind of IMF also, but um, I found that it didn't really have a negative effect on um, health expenditure and in particular public health expenditure. And that was really um, counter not only to uh, what I expected, right, um, but also counter to the narratives that we have about the World Bank's work in health in Latin America. So um, one of the arguments that I make um, kind of pretty strongly in a, in a 2015 paper on Costa Rica and I echo in the book is that, you know, the, the cases you choose affect the, the answers that you get. And so a lot of what we know about what the World Bank has done in health in Latin America is based on the Chilean case and, and to a lesser extent, um, the Colombian case. And those were cases where there was kind of a heavy shift towards um, neoliberalism and kind of privatization um, under Pinochet in particular um, in Chile. We've heard a lot of like about the Chicago boys. And um, so I was really kind of surprised to not find this regional effect. Um, and I suspected that it wasn't because um, the World Bank didn't matter, but that perhaps it was doing different things in different countries. And so um, that was kind of what set me um, on the path to the kind of qualitative um, case study analyses that I do um, in the book. And so primarily I did um, interviews with kind of um, pretty high-ranking key informants um, in each of the countries. So uh, Ministry of Health personnel, Social Security personnel, um, some kind of consultants, World Bank personnel, Inter-American Development Bank people, USAID people um, in these countries. Um, and then also the, the other nice thing is that I use um, a variety of documents and I actually am able to draw on the population rather than a sample um, of documents uh, associated with all World Bank projects and loans in um, Argentina, Costa Rica, and Peru, which are my three countries. Um, and I uh, kind of limited myself to between 
1980 and 2005. So projects could have ended after 2005, but I thought that was kind of a good um, stopping point just to give a little bit of retrospective um, distance um, because projects will often last kind of, you know, five, sometimes 10 um, years. And I started in 1980 because um, for kind of a couple of reasons. So on the countryside, the 1980s is known in Latin America as kind of the lost decade um, because it's characterized by deep recession and really um, a lot of hyperinflation and other kind of economic um, troubles, I guess I would say. And so this is a time of kind of maximum uncertainty and maximum desperation on the part of government. So if we are expecting them to seek out World Bank help, like this is the time that they're probably most vulnerable um, to World Bank recommendations. And then the other reason is that 1980 is the year that the World Bank publishes um, a health sector um, policy report and formally commits um, to lending in the health sector. So it's really kind of time zero um, for the World Bank's kind of work um, in health. So sorry, that was probably a pretty long-winded answer <laughs> about <Yeah>. data. <laughs> No, 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 that's perfect, actually, because my because my question then is sort of like, why the World Bank? So in, in, in why health? So in your book, you say that the World Bank is a uniquely powerful policy advisor. But for maybe people who don't know about the World Bank, um, can you give us more explanation of like who they are and like why they would be important, especially in health reform? Yeah. Um, the World Bank uh, is is one of um, a few kind of international financial institutions. And so I make um, an argument that these institutions are really powerful um, and that, in fact, most sociological research about um, global health at the global governance and institution level is really focused on the World Health Organization. Um, and the World Health Organization is really important um, and uh, broadly uh, the World Bank and the World Health Organization are thought of as kind of the two global ministries of health. So um, they wield a lot of kind of normative power in um, not only telling countries how to solve their health problems, but actually even in um, kind of framing to countries what should be considered health problems, right? And we see this, I think, probably most forcefully when we think about the Millennium Development Goals and now the Sustainable Development Goals, right? That are, um, you know, there's there's a few of them. Um, and they are the same for all countries, even though countries um, own kind of health, um, I guess I would say problems or issues, right, or opportunities might be really different. Um, so the World Bank, though, it, unlike the World Health Organization, is uniquely powerful um, because it has money. So it leverages not just normative power, but quite a bit of financial power. And what's important to know about the World Bank is um, that it's a lender of last resort. So uh, the World Bank doesn't go to countries and kind of give them money. Countries have to um, request loans from the World Bank. Um, so I think it's it's often thought that the World Bank kind of um, decides um, what countries should do. And it does in the sense that it can it can approve or deny a loan, but actually countries are the ones that have to formulate the loan, although they oftentimes do that um, in in conversation, I guess I would say, with with the World Bank. But um, so it wields a lot of financial um, power because it's a lender of last resort. So if countries can um, get capital from private banks or other um, kind of institutions, the World Bank will not lend to them. Um, and kind of more broadly, um, the World Bank started as kind of a Bretton Woods institution in 1944, and it was originally the um, International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, kind of um, post-World uh, War II rebuilding, and since it's become really um, a development bank. 
And so in terms of the the kind of mechanism that the World Bank can use to influence countries, so it can it can allow or deny loans, but more specifically, it actually can set conditions on projects and loans. So it can tell countries, um, unless you do X, we will not give you the money, right? Um, and it can continue to do that. Um, over the course of the loan. And that has made it, um, it has people have made the argument that that's made it uniquely um, powerful uh, because it can um, kind of circumscribe and, and otherwise dictate, right, what countries have to do in order to have access to these monies. And so I think Latin America in the 1980s and 1990s, um, which is which is the area that um, I look at, is um, it probably kind of the the strongest case, right? Because these are times when these countries are really desperate because of economic crises that they were weathering. And so the World Bank is kind of especially powerful during that time. So if we see um, the World Bank being able to kind of strongly influence the direction um, of countries, then I think that that would be be the case. Um, And we would probably see it most strongly during, um, during this time period. So... Um, I think the other part of your question, so one was kind of why the World Bank and, and then why health. So so I think, you know, the World Bank um, historically has been the single largest external funder of health in developing countries. So again, it yields kind of this large financial power, not just on an individual case basis in terms of conditions on loans, but um, just in terms of the the large amount of work that it does in health, and that set it up alongside the World Health Organization as a real kind of um, normative, not just financial power um, in health, in terms of just technical expertise, um, even um, evaluation kind of stuff. So what's really interesting is that um, some of the programs that I look at, it's really hard to find um, information outside the World Bank on how well the programs it's implemented um, have worked because it itself is is a really large powerhouse in terms of research and evaluation um, in some of these countries where, at least historically, not a lot of other organizations were doing um, work in health. Yeah, so that sort of leads me into my question um, from Chapter 2, which is sort of uh, there's a few things actually from this chapter. So first, um, I think you referenced it already, but the 1993 World Development Report, and you say that really kind of crystallized this like neoliberal turn in health. So sort of like what that is, but also a little bit later in the chapter, you talk about like a renewed focus on the poor and their health outcomes, and like maybe for the demographers in the audience, like why why is that interesting? I guess so. So those two things. Um, so the the 1993 World Development Report and then the focus on kind of poverty is, was was were those the two things? Okay, great, yeah, yeah. So um, the 1993 World Development Report um, is seen as this kind of really seminal, um, I would say, kind of watershed moment um, in terms of the way that um, development, the development community, the international kind of development community. Um, thinks about health. And then the World Bank circles back um, in 2004 um, on kind of uh, the the report is called is is about improving services for poor people. And so this is um, the only time that health kind of um, comes back to making this big appearance. And so I guess part of the thing that was surprising to me is that, um, like I said, a lot of sociologists have focused um, on the World Health Organization and and rightly so. Um, And then on the other hand, a lot of kind of political economy and and um, finance and political science scholars have focused on the World Bank, but not really its its work in health, right? More um, particularly 
um, other kinds of work, right, including it together with the IMF's kind of work in structural adjustment in other countries. Um, and so I think that health is kind of in terms of the world bank's um, role in health is, is a little bit kind of understudied. So partly what I aim to do with this book is kind of fill um, that that gap. So um, in 1993, the the kind of um, World Development Report um, talks about um, kind of poverty and a way in which we can solve um, health problems, and it. Uh, I think it's important, though, to note that that with 1980, with the publication of its kind of health um, policy report, it it takes a very um, I would say kind of more universalist, even though it's a primary healthcare kind of approach and is very kind of pro, I'm um, just providing healthcare to everyone, what we today know is kind of a movement towards universalism, right? Um, and then in 1993, we see this kind of um, economistic, right, for lack of a better word, um, logic that's taken on in terms of how we think about poverty um, and how we think about health. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I try to kind of disentangle is, um, rights discourses versus these kinds of economistic discourses, right? So, um, you know, the the Millennium Development Goals and beyond are saying that we need to invest in mothers and children, um, and no one's really going to argue with that generally, right? Um, we think that better health um, is is a good thing, right? And in particular, we want to um, invest in poor people and in maternal health and in infant health. Like all of these are seen as kind of important areas. Um, but there's a really important point to be made about whether we want to invest in the health of these people because they're human beings and we think that they deserve rights and that health is somehow seen as a right or it's seen as part and parcel of kind of a citizen state contract, right, in terms of what the state is expected to provide to citizens um, versus this other kind of approach that the World Bank really embraces um, in the report, which is a real human capital kind of approach. So the idea is that we want to invest in health because we want um, these children that we're investing in and, and the mothers that are birthing these children um, to kind of constitute a future healthy and educated um, labor force, right? So this is a really kind of different logic in terms of why the state should involve itself in health um, and what kind of investing, um, quote unquote, kind of investing in health um, does uh, for people, right? And so I guess I should um, back up a little bit and say that the the World Bank's kind of um, approach, both the World Bank and the IMF, they're fundamentally concerned with economic stability and economic growth, right? And so uh, it kind of um, makes sense then, right, that this focus on labor is where we can plug in health to kind of make the argument um, towards towards economic growth, right? So um, we can do that also by um, when we invest in health and education, other social service, right, reducing poverty, because again, um, these are people who uh, will become kind of a labor pool and we are um, concerned with kind of human capital, right? So investing in people. Um, and there's also kind of a real thread of efficiency um, kind of across. So in the in the first chapter, I really talk about this idea um, and this distinction between equity and efficiency as kind of goals um, in health. And um, where we think about equity as kind of um, equal opportunity, although some people equate it with equality, and then efficiency is just getting the same outcome um, for uh, less input, right? The same output for less input or, or better output for, for input, right? In terms of um, where we spend our money. So um, 
there's this kind of tension, right, um, between equity and efficiency. And I think that what's interesting to me is um, there's not a lot of kind of um, sociologists that have written a lot about this, particularly in the context um, of health. But it's, it seems to me kind of based on conversations and talks I've given um, on this research that sociologists don't necessarily see equity and efficiency as in, in competition with each other. Um, sociologists kind of think that we can come up with policies that certainly can enhance both. And um, my sense is that this is really different from the way that economists think about this. So economists really think about... Um, Health in a way where if you um, try to divide the, the economic pie into more equal pieces, the whole pie gets kind of smaller, right? Um, and so these two are seen as kind of fundamentally a tension. And I think that that is really the approach that the World Bank um, has taken um, kind of historically um, to this. And I also, in that chapter, um, talk about how the World Bank has had kind of relatively stable financial commitments to health kind of since the 1990s, although there are a lot of, so while its spending has remained kind of pretty consistent, we have a lot of new players like the Gates Foundation um, and others that are coming in and that this calls into question, right, um, how important or relevant the World Bank will kind of be be moving forward. But I think that's, that's kind of another another question perhaps for someone else to write a book on. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah. So then in um, chapter three, you sort of take it one step further from what you were talking about and you sort of point out the importance of looking at the World Bank in developing countries. Um, and you sort of point out two things. So the economic changes associated with development resulting in demographic changes and then how globalization may affect health. Um, so I was hoping you could talk about those two things. Yeah. So I think um, I guess I'll just I'll just kind of, um, you know, uh, back up kind of a little bit to the first chapter, which is kind of the, the theory um, chapter. So I guess, you know, the, the question kind of guiding the book is that kind of how is it that the World Bank, which is really viewed as this um, neoliberal hegemon um, in health and and by neoliberalism, I really mean kind of a a market fundamentalism, right? The idea that the market knows best and we should really, and, and really to, coupled with an anti-statism, right? The idea that we should keep the state um, out of markets because it kind of messes up um, issues that are best left to market forces of, of supply and demand. So the question is, you know, why is it that we don't witness a sharp neoliberal turn, right, towards the market in health in Latin America since the 1980s, given that the World Bank is so powerful um, and that countries are so desperate for kind of external funding. So um, we also think about neoliberalism as kind of being associated with the efficiency side of the, the efficiency equity um, trade-off. Um, and then I kind of identify um, six policy instruments that we can think of. And so, so part of, you know, what my work aims to do is impose a little bit of analytic clarity on the concept of neoliberalism, which I think is is a word that we throw around a lot. Um, and I think that we're not really sure, or some of us aren't really sure what we mean. Um, and we may even mean different things when we're talking to each other, in particular about what it means for health. So I look at kind of um, six policy instruments at decentralization and deconcentration, um, which means kind of uh, 
decentralizing um, state power and deconcentration is seen as the political variety of that and decentralization, the geographic kind of variety of it. Um, the second is a really popular tool, performance-based financing, right? The idea that we reward um, hospitals or providers um, based on on kind of what they do. Um, three, The third is kind of a separation of functions across and within institutions. So we can think of financing and purchasing and regulation um, and health at the systems level. Um, we can also think about targeting, which is often seen as really neoliberal because we often think about targeting as the opposite of universalism. So targeting would be um, when we say we're going to provide health for just uh, mothers or just, you know, people below a certain poverty line, um, et cetera, et cetera. The fifth is um, private sector involvement, which is probably the most kind of classically um, neoliberal. And the sixth is really a primary health care approach, which is seen as aligning really closely with equity, but um, interestingly ends up being um, also used as an argument for efficiency, right? So that people can get preventative care and care at the first level rather than being referred to kind of complex institutions like, like hospitals. So those are the kind of um, approaches that I trace, but when we look at, at um, kind of neoliberalism, uh, you know, what we would expect is to see um, a reduction in public expenditures um, on health, right? If indeed we witness a neoliberal turn, right? And in particular, I look at um, a variety of different outcomes, right? So public expenditure weighted not just um, per capita, but also by GDP, which is really important in Latin America because countries are of vastly different kind of economic and population sizes. Um, and most kind of interesting to me is the public-private mix of health expenditure. So what percent of health expenditure is um, public versus private? And um, to the best of my knowledge, my um, book is the first that, um, or my analysis, I guess, in the book is the first that's used um, conditions on loans. And so what I did is I um, used a data set produced by the World Bank to look at the number of conditions um, imposed on all loans um, and then on particular on health and social service um, sector loans. And that really, I think, is important because it really gets at the primary mechanism that researchers argue should be the thing that's driving down public expenditures, right? Um, so kind of if we have more conditions, um, oftentimes those those conditions in the, in the effort to kind of um, stabilize um, the economic system would be to reduce um, state commitments. And these are known as the suite of kind of structural adjustment um, programs, right? And so Surprisingly, um, what I find is um, that conditions attached to loans don't have an effect on health expenditure, and they certainly don't have a negative um, kind of statistically distinguishable from zero um, kind of effect on on health loans. And the other thing I find is that, um, of course, you know, these kind of legacies and spending across countries are really um, durable, right, which is what um, historical institutionalists um, would, would tell us. And so, so I guess what's interesting, I actually um, just came back from giving a book talk at um, uh, the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I always uh, forget what the acronym stands for, but um, and I got the kind of question of like, oh, well, this is surprising, right? You you didn't find an effect and yet you kept going. Um, and I think that this is really, um, you know, I alluded to it earlier, but this is really the reason that I wrote a book um, because, you know, the question that it raises, this, this kind of lack of statistical significance in the, in the um, cross-section time series models that go from 1995 to 2009. And, and I'll just note that the reason that I start in 1995 with the quantitative data is that um, that's the data that um, 
the World Health Organization starts requiring developing um, countries to standardize the way that they report their health expenditures. So um, data before that tracks pretty well in terms of um, the the trends in spending kind of at, a, at the region level, um, but it's a little bit um, kind of higher than than the 1995 um, data overall, but we're starting in 1995. So, um, you know, I knew kind of going in, I had done some pre-dissertation research in 2009, and I had read pretty widely, um, both kind of um, foreign scholars on this, but um, kind of methodologically, I guess I'll note that um, I think it's really important if you're doing um, not not kind of this large cross-national stuff, but um, country-specific case studies that you are at least able to kind of read the language. Well, obviously, you need to be able to converse in the language if you're doing interviews like I did. But um, it's important that you read in the language. Otherwise, I think you leave a lot of kind of local knowledge um, and local scholarship untouched, um, which is which is problematic for a variety of reasons. Um, but so I had kind of, you know, spent a lot of time reading in particular in Peru. That was kind of where my pre-dissertation um, research was. And and that that research was a little bit too for kind of just kind of proof of concept um, to figure out if I could even get access to these high-ranking key informants and if they would talk to me about these things. Um, and so, you know, this kind of raises the question, you know, you don't find this effect. So does that mean that the World Bank and other international financial institutions don't matter for um, the way that health spending occurs or um, health investment occurs. Um, and, uh, you know, my argument is that the answer uh, is is more complicated than that, right? Um, and, and that um, the World Bank's work varies across countries, and that's part of the answer. Um, so this kind of, I guess, supply side answer <laughs> in terms of the fact that the World Bank is trying to do different things across countries, um, but also that countries kind of existing institutions um, kind of pattern the ways in which the World Bank both seeks to be involved and actually is able um, to be involved. So um, all of these kind of effects, I think, um, basically wash out in in the regional um, in the regional kind of analysis, and I think um, that is where I come up with the the kind of um, theoretical framework that I use of state capacity and autonomy in health as really shaping um, the World Bank's kind of involvement and effect on health sector reform. That actually leads um, into the the next thing, which is your case studies, which I like. You were saying I think are really fascinating, right? Because there's effects happening, but it varies based on sort of what the countries are already doing or trying to do. So you first start with Argentina. So I was hoping you could sort of set the stage for that and and what happens there. Yeah. So um, Argentina is kind of a really, um, I mean, all countries are very interesting. Um, and certainly all the countries I chose are very interesting. Um, but Argentina is... Um, particularly interesting because it might be the country with which the World Bank has had kind of um, the most extensive and maybe even the most successful kind of relationship and health um, in the region. And um, Argentina's kind of health sector is dominated by um, these uh, kind of trade union health um uh, organizations called um, the obras sociales, or like the the social works, I guess, um, literally translated, um, and they are kind of really dominant, and they date back to um, mutual aid societies. So they're along occupational lines. You'll find one for like commercial workers, and one I think there's one for like 
you know, culinary um, employees. Um, and, and so they vary kind of along along these lines. And what's really interesting about Argentina is that in 1989, um, one of the informants um, in the book, um, Aldo Neri, is um, the health minister, and he's really kind of um, a visionary. And so he um, attempts to introduce a real universal um, public health system. And this system ends up failing um, due to these kind of trade-based insurance funds, the Obras Sociales, um, which are really opposed to this, right? They don't want to, like, take a cut in terms of their power. Um, and so this is this is kind of really interesting. And so I define kind of, and I, and I, I argue um, partly because of some really interesting research that's coming out of political science, that it's and and partly based on my own observations, right? That it's really important to distinguish um, state capacity and state autonomy in terms of what the state does across sectors, right? So um, it actually turns out, and I know there's some research on kind of different states in Mexico that um, the ability of and by that I mean kind of subnational, kind of federal um, states, right? So so like you know Indiana and Wyoming or something. Um, the equivalent kind of Mexican states, um, that there's no reason to believe that if that the the a state that has kind of, uh, for example, large extractive capacity in terms of taxes will also have kind of a well-functioning, um, uncorrupt police force, right? That these are kind of different domains and states may be really good at some things like health and really poor um, on some things like education, which really um, really contradicts really established kind of notions of state capacity and autonomy um, as we're kind of classically um, taught them, I think, um, for those of us that do um, state-based um, research. So I think that the way that I um, conceptualize um, state um, capacity and autonomy is that autonomy is really um, and I borrow from kind of Pierre Evans embedded autonomy. It's the ability of the state to formulate collective goals, right? So does the state have a clear vision um, in in my case in health, right? Um, and then capacity, on the other hand, is um, the ability to actually carry out that vision, right? Um, and so this draws from um, people like Michael Mann and, and Barbara Geddes, right? Um, this this kind of physical and institutional ability to implement um, reforms and, or according to Mann, I think he says to implement logistically political decisions throughout the realm, right? This idea of kind of the reach of the state and its ability to actually do the things it wants to do. And so I characterize Argentina overall as a kind of planner state because it has, um, for much of these period with Neri and then with with Ginez kind of later on, um, another health minister, it has kind of a clear um, set of things that it wants to do in health, um, and it's actually unable to carry them out, right? And partly, um, largely, this is due um, to the Obras Sociales um, kind of opposition, right? They want to retain their power. Um, and it's also partly due just to, to the federal um, kind of system of the Argentinian state. Each of the provinces has its own kind of health um, ministry or minister and has its own kind of obra social for, for the, the workers kind of within that state. So it's a pretty kind of disjointed um, and maybe I would say fragmented um, kind of kind of health system. And so um, the... The work that I do in kind of the chapter is looking to see kind of what the World Bank did, right? So based on these allegations of kind of neoliberalism, we would expect the World Bank to oppose this um, this plan to kind of implement 
public and government-based um, universal health care. And it turns out that the World Bank is kind of agnostic about it. So it says, you know, if you put forward a loan and you want us to support this, um, then we we will probably be able to help you. Um, but we're just kind of going to stay out of it. You're going to need to figure out within your kind of system um, how to do that. And so I found that to be a really kind of interesting um to be kind of an interesting component. And the other thing that's interesting is that the World Bank ends up supporting a really kind of sweeping, um, okay, maybe sweeping is a little dramatic, but um, a far-reaching, I guess, reform, which is um, the Plan Nacer, um, or birth plan, I guess it would be technically um, translated, that seeks to kind of provide care um, for mothers and children kind of across that either don't have obras sociales, um, uh, kind of support either for themselves or via um, family member and really seeks to kind of do that. And so it, it creates a lot of kind of targeted programs. And so the World Bank supports another AIDS program um, that in the in the federal um, district of Buenos Aires, right, the capital. Um, and so, so it ends up doing these things that we might view as kind of promoting uh, state involvement in health, right, which is, again, kind of counter to what um, we would we would probably expect um, of the World Bank. But I think what's interesting to note about this is that it's still uh, pretty economistic in its logic, right? And the way that it justifies it um, is um, by saying that that it'll feed into kind of human capital, right? Um, and it uses these kind of um, policy instruments that I described earlier, right? Like this kind of rationalization of the health system, this idea um, of a separation uh, of functions in terms of, of what it, the work that it does in Argentina. So, so then you move into your uh, case study about Peru, and here you sort of um, talk about uh, the the chapter is called Slow Steady Health Reform in a Weak State. And, and so I was hoping you could talk about Peru. Yeah. So Peru um, is, um, to me, one of the more interesting countries. And I guess I guess I should know, I talk about this more in the conclusion, but um, I think what's, what's um, I mean, I these um, cases were chosen purely for kind of theoretical reasons. So I wanted um, a country each in kind of the quadrants of kind of low capacity, low autonomy, which is Peru, um, high autonomy, low capacity, right, which is Argentina, and then high um, capacity, high autonomy, which is which is my final case of of Costa Rica. So, I think that where Argentina is really informative um, to to countries that are undergoing kind of recessions or problems that have a really employment based health system, Peru is probably. Um, pretty informative to broadly kind of um, developing countries, in particular low and low middle income um, countries, because um, we can think about it as a really kind of prototypical weak state in health. So it's characterized by fairly weak autonomy. There's not a ton of clear health goals um, over this time period um, and the really kind of weak capacity. So unlike in Argentina, um, the capacity isn't because the government is being blocked necessarily by other agents, um, which in the case of Argentina is the Obras Sociales, but um, Peru has kind of very little infrastructural um, ability to kind of carry out health reforms. Um, and it has kind of limited financial resources, right, as kind of a, a developing country. And so um, Peru is really the place where we would expect the sharpest kind of neoliberal turn, right? It's the most vulnerable to international pressures, although Argentina arguably weathered the most severe um, kind of recessions maybe um, during this time period. But Peru is certainly the, the kind of poorest country um, in the 1980s um, of the three. 
And so it's really vulnerable to international pressures and social program cutbacks. And so I think what's really surprising about this case is it really displays the exact opposite trend, right? Um, There is really an expansion of public health financing and coverage, um, though it's important to note that the provision is often subcontracted to private providers. And so during um, the the presidency of of Alberto Fujimori, who was um, a really kind of populist um, president, um, we see two kinds of insurance that are set up. So one, um, the Seguro Escolar Gratuito, which is um, like the uh, the free kind of school children, um, I guess, insurance, um, we would call it. And then the, the Seguro Materno Infantil, um, which is the infant kind of maternal um, health insurance, are um, put into place. And this is um, largely with monies um, from the World Bank. And and, and it's important to note that the, the kind of landscapes of financing are different. So USAID is really very active in Peru, um, both at kind of a project level, but also at an institutional kind of systems level um, in a way that it is not, um, according to my data, in Argentina or Costa Rica. So um, these two kind of come about. And what's really interesting about that, too, just just as kind of a side note, is that there's a lot of the, the kind of welfare state canon, which is the literature that that I kind of um, I guess, grew up with, right, um, as, as a sociologist, um, leads us to believe that it's really kind of left party seats and democratization that would really cause social investments, right? That's kind of what we think about when we think about um, Europe and other OECD um, nations. Um, but in fact, it turns out, and there's some um, additional indication coming out of kind of quantitative data on the developing world more broadly, that it's often actually um, perhaps right-wing, but definitely populist presidents in developing countries that are the ones that are expanding um, health systems in an effort to kind of um, maintain their power, right, and kind of, um, I wouldn't say kind of like by by support, I guess, um, of, of the people, right, or maintain um, support. So, so I think that that this is just an interesting kind of side note about Peru. But um, this gets consolidated into the Seguro Integral de Salud, or the um, Integral Health Insurance, which really aims to create an overarching publicly regulated health insurance in Peru. Though some of the functions again are kind of left to the private sector. The idea is that the state is um, pulling people into this um, kind of kind of health insurance, right? And so, um, you know, some of the things that are maybe expected do come to bear. Peru probably um, demonstrates most clearly in both the documents and the interviews, the kind of logic of economic productivity and human capital as a way that's used um, to kind of advanced, uh, advance kind of health and in particular public or state um, involvement in health, right? And so it really kind of there's, you know, I I talk about in the first chapter, this kind of increasing recognition that neoliberalism doesn't um, it, you know, it, it, it transforms rather than reduces the state's involvement in that, you know, neoliberalism requires a certain kind of stateness or a certain level of stateness and that states are the ones that are responsible for at least regulating, um, but also just kind of facilitating the types of market interactions that we, we think about when we think about, um, neoliberalism. Right. And so I think that, um, you know, Peru is probably the case that most um, strongly calls for us to to understand that neoliberalism and neoliberal kind of reforms don't always reduce the role of the state, but sometimes just transform it, um, it as kind of a more of a, a regulator. Um, and I think that 
Um, what is um, the other thing that's kind of interesting about um, the the Peruvian case is that you know even in a weak state there's a lot of movement towards universal way universal care um, and health but in a really kind of segmented um, approach and I think you know one of my favorite. Um, things is that uh, about about this chapter to kind of talk about is that um, Peru really embodies um, oddly in this time period, right? The the kind of um, paradoxical strength of weak states, right? So when you have a pretty, um, I would say, I don't know if unstable is the right word, but you, when you have kind of a weak or segmented um, or, or disorganized central apparatus of the state and health, which is the case in Peru for much of this time period. Um, it's kind of disjointed and it's almost too segmented to co-opt, right? So even if the World Bank had come in with a strong intention to co-opt it, which there's not actually a lot of evidence that that was the case, um, Peru is kind of um, able to withstand that um, partly because there's a lot of kind of change and this isn't kind of, this is not a strongly um, autonomous or capacious kind of state and health where a foreign um, I guess institution can come in and just co-opt it um, wholesale. So, so then in uh, your last case study, you've got Costa Rica, which, in contrast to the other two, you kind of classify as a health without wealth situation. So, you know, they're scoring pretty high on health indicators like low infant mortality and high life expectancy. Um, so, I was wondering if you could talk about Costa Rica. Yeah, so Costa Rica is really interesting. I think in terms of both the universalism um, of its coverage and its kind of fantastic health indicators in terms of life expectancy and maternal mortality and infant mortality, its profile is much more similar to a developed country than to a developing country. And so this is a really kind of interesting um, approach. Partly, this is due to the fact that in 1940, Costa Rica abolishes its military, um, its kind of standing army. And so um, that frees up, as you can imagine, a lot of money for social services, right? You can imagine what would happen um, in the U.S. if um, we didn't have a defense budget, right? If that budget could then be reallocated um, to social services. So um, this kind of is what ends up um, happening um, in Costa Rica. And it's probably um, second kind of only to Cuba, right, in in the in the extent to which it is a universal system. So the Caja Costarricense de Seguro Social, or the Caja, the Costa Rican um, Social Security um, Agency, provides near kind of universal care uh, with a tripartite kind of financing scheme. So employers pay, employees pay, um, and then the state um, finances um, or subsidizes those who are unable to pay. Um, but what's really interesting is that also, um, you know, my data comes from interviews which provide a kind of private um, hidden transcript of what's going on, but also official documents that provide a public transcript. And I make the kind of, I make an argument that those are important to look at because the public transcripts are the things that you can't change, right? Those are the things that the media and the public has access to. Um, and they're also, right, when you, um, as those of us um, who do qualitative data analysis know, interviews come with their own um, set of issues, right? Uh, because people uh, will aggrandize their role or will sugarcoat their involvement or all kinds of um, things happen. And so a public transcript um, of documents is similarly limited, right? Because it is also a public face um, in somehow. But um, 
And so I looked at kind of the World Bank documents, which I had access, like I said, to the population of, but I also looked at government documents. So um, laws, decrees, um, and then official statements by and reports by kind of the health ministry and other reports. And Costa Rica is really great because it is a treasure trove um, of data. Every four years, it publishes a national official development plan, um, and it has a section for each sector, including the health sector. So Costa Rica has really very consistent, which again is is consistent with its status as kind of having high autonomy, right, in health. Um, it's really formulating collective goals in a really kind of meaningful way at a regular basis. I mean, it talks about health and kind of as early, even before um, the 1980s and kind of the earlier development plans, it's starting to question the kind of funding model um, of the CAHA or the CCSS. Um, and so this is kind of a really strong um, indication that these pushes towards efficiency and this effort to contain costs is not necessarily something that's imposed um, by the World Bank um, or even by kind of uh, global trade and kind of race to the bottom arguments, right? So the, the classic kind of argument is that we expect to see states cut back in social protections and particularly for labor and a reduction in kind of the collection um, of taxes and then the provision of social services um, based on the revenue from these taxes because they're competing for um, foreign investment, right? So the idea is that if um, a company is deciding whether to locate their factory in Costa Rica or the Philippines, right, the government will say, well, we'll tax you less or we won't require you to provide insurance or all kinds of things to kind of lure um, foreign companies um, in. And so this is why we expect globalization to kind of intensify um, neoliberalism and this kind of race to the bottom of stripping away um, social services and kind of protections um, and taxations and other kinds of things. So what's interesting is that the Costa Rican case really kind of um, signifies that the Costa Rican government was talking about kind of efficiency in health and concerns about costs and cutting costs well before the World Bank kind of ever arrives there. Um, and so in Costa Rica, the real challenge in health is maintaining rather than establishing um, universal coverage, right? And it's it's drawn on the World Bank funds for some of its most important reforms. So, for example, um, in the mid-1990s, it creates um, primary health care teams, the EBAIS or the Equipos Básicos de Atención Integral de Salud. And what these are are kind of healthcare teams that exist per number of people in the population. And sometimes they're actual clinics, but sometimes they're actually mobile kind of units. Um, and they kind of um, go around and are, are attempting to kind of both deepen kind of coverage, right, um, and access um, by being kind of more proximal, but also attempting to kind of de-escalate. Um, so the idea is that, you know, if you get treated um, for an illness or an infection or something at kind of a lower level, then you avoid going to a hospital, which we know it, it costs so much more to treat someone for the same thing at a hospital just because of overhead costs and technology um, and these other kinds of things. And so um, what's interesting is that um, the, the kind of idea of a strong state being able to withstand pressure um, bears out in the Costa Rican case um, a little bit. But what's interesting is that the World Bank, even there, it just doesn't really push for, for state retrenchment um, in terms of health, right? They have some kind of debate. So, for example, um, in the advice, um, Costa Rica wanted them to be headed by a nurse or a technician. Um, did I say Costa Rica? I meant the World Bank. Wanted them to be headed by a, a nurse or technician. And the Costa Rican government was pretty adamant um, that it should be headed up by a doctor, that that was kind of the culture of the country. And 
I think this highlights something else that I talk about in the book, but I didn't really mention um, in kind of the first chapter that we know a lot about what the World Bank does and kind of trade policy and a little bit pension is probably the pensions are the domain that we know most about what it does in terms of social services. But um, pensions are really about money, whereas health is about a bunch of different things and presents a bunch of different problems because of information asymmetries and principal agent problems. Um, and also this idea of kind of the way that it intersects with um, gender and race and ethnicity and nativity status um, and identity, right? So Costa Rica really sees a large part of its identity as being tied up with this um, egalitarian, um, you know, caja kind of approach um, to health. And this is kind of really... Um, important to its self-concept. Um, and therefore, and because it has proven results in health in terms of indicators, um, I found kind of some indication in my data that, that that makes the World Bank even more interested in cooperating with it because the World Bank wants some credit, um, basically wants to come in and say, oh, yes, we also took part of that. And so we're helping um, this kind of approach. And so um, it, it it's important, though, because um, the World Bank and kind of other um, IFIs, uh, international financial institutions, can probably play a really important advisory and funding role, even in strong states that have established kind of health systems, um, given the fact that healthcare costs are skyrocketing, right, because of the transition from infectious to chronic illnesses. And of course, infectious illnesses are, are cheaper and a little bit more straightforward um, to treat. Um, also because of extended life expectancies, right, and the issues that are associated with aging populations, which I know is something that you do some research in, right? Um, and so all of these, all of these things, right, are causing countries to seek out ways in which to cut costs and kind of manage the ballooning costs of healthcare. Um, and I think that this is really contrary to the way that we've thought about the World Bank's um, work in health and the way that we've thought about, um, you know, kind of international systems imposing um, market-based reforms and kind of cutting, um, I guess, coverage, right? Rather, these are issues that are a function of extended life expectancies and aging and and health technologies that are kind of spreading, right, and chronic diseases um, and all of these other things that, frankly, um, we um, are already seeing, right, OECD countries encounter, and we should expect that all developing countries will encounter at some stage. So, Yeah, that's what I found to be really fascinating is you sort of have these big demographic um, shifts happening in every country, but then, you know, the case studies present this sort of interesting um, compare and contrast between different, you know, internal states and then what the world bank does to influence them. So I, I really thought that 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 was sort of an interesting way to kind of conceptualize um, what you were talking about throughout the book. But then at the very end, you sort of sum up, um, you know, what you kind of take away and you have both empirical and theoretical sort of takeaways. So I was hoping that you could sort of tell us about what you really, you know, for anybody listening, what you really sort of want them to take away from your book. Yeah, I think that part of um, the issue with marshalling so much data and having kind of three country case studies um, and drawing from all of these literatures, right, on welfare states and developmental states and kind of historical um, institutionalist kind of approaches 
is that um, there's there's kind of several, I guess, important takeaways um, that are that were very challenging for me to kind of synthesize, right? Because you want you want a really clear narrative in the book, but then but then you're also like, no, all these things are really important. So I try to kind of throw those nuggets in in the chapter specific, right? Like the paradoxical strength of weak states, right, and the implications of employment based um, insurance schemes, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think, you know, in the conclusion, I just kind of um, go back to welfare state theory and kind of argue that we need to refine it, um, both kind of um, logic of industrialism theories that emphasize demographic and economic shifts and also power resources theories that emphasize um, democracy and kind of global governance and kind of state-centered um, theories uh, that talk about kind of veto points and the structure of governments. We need to kind of refine those for the developing um, country context and consider that things are a little different. And I think I, I mentioned a little bit, right, how um, in in some of these Latin American countries, it's actually populist and maybe right-wing leaders that are expanding social services, which is not um, what we expect in a, in a developed country um, kind of context. So I think the kind of um, take take home of the book is that um, the World Bank um, matters. It matters a lot, but it really matters differently um, across different countries. And that's what really the work that the case studies um, show, right? And that this difference is is two-pronged, right? First, it's that the World Bank isn't attempting to do the same thing across countries. And again, I should note that methodologically, I focused on Latin America because it's a really interesting laboratory for um, third wave democratization and it's coming out of a recession. And I'm trying to keep, quote unquote, constant the kind of legacy of colonial rule, right? It's Spanish. And so this is why I didn't do um, my work in Brazil, right? Um, One of a couple of reasons. Um, but also because um, the World Bank has a regional directorate. So we would expect it to operate the most similarly in Latin American countries because it has a Latin American Caribbean um, kind of uh, bureau that um, it has. So we would expect it to be more similar than work that it would do, for example, in Malaysia as compared with Chile, right? Even though they may be um, more similar in other kinds of ways. So in many ways, I kind of do the most conservative test, right, for where the World Bank um, um, should matter. Um, and I think that, um, you know, I return to this kind of theoretical um, issue, drawing also on kind of a lot of medical sociologists that have done this work, where health is really not just um, financial and kind of monetary management, perhaps like pensions, but it also stands really at the core of citizen state contracts and welfare politics and national and individuals' ident- identities. And so it's a really complex um, field of understanding. And so when we try to parse out what neoliberalism and health means, that deserves important attention, right? Um, and so I think that neoliberalism and health has been assumed more than it has been studied. And so I try to say, you know, what would we see um, if we saw neoliberalism kind of advancing in health, right? Both in terms of the paradigms of equity and efficiency and kind of in terms of spending, but also in terms of the the kind of um, policy instruments um, that I that I talked about. And I think that the the kind of take home um, is that, you know, we need to distinguish between ends and means um, and kind of tools and outcomes. So a tool like targeting, which is seen as neoliberal because it's not, um, it's it stands in contrast, at least theoretically, to universalism, actually can work at the service of universalism. So Costa Rica is an excellent example of using targeting of indigenous populations and um, other types um, of populations to kind of deepen what is already existing universal coverage, right? And I think that... Um, 
I really kind of argue that um, state capacity and autonomy really shape the World Bank's interest and the kind of substance or content of its involvement in really sometimes surprising ways, right, as, as is the example um, of Peru. So, so I think that um, methodologically, I'm a big, I mean, I'm, I'm a comparativist always. Um, so I think comparative research is really important. And I think that um, mixed methods research is always really important because um, if I had not had the kind of qualitative understanding that I did um, at that time of Peru, right, when I wrote the the 2011 paper and kind of read the literature carefully, then I might have just stopped at a non-significant coefficient and then the paper just, you know, would have died and that would have been it, right? Um, but instead, I think what the book shows is the importance of kind of leveraging these different um, types of analyses and um, triangulating kind of data um, and, and, you know, the 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 kind of quantitative data can tell us about trends and it can tell us about the correlates um, of spending. But um, in terms of really getting down to the dynamics of interaction, um, it's the documents that tell us what is the finally agreed upon product in terms of what loan agreements are signed and how um, people uh, in, in the countries and in the World Bank kind of understood the success or failure of the programs. Um, but the interviews really provide this kind of background information about what was happening that often doesn't show up um, in the official documents. So I think that um, the book um, kind of really intervenes, I hope, right, in debates about um, global health and global governance and health and and kind of neoliberalism um, and health and and about kind of welfare state or welfare regime, as they're often called in, in developing countries, um, kind of development. And I think... You know, the other thing that that I hope the book does, and this is why it was really important for me to do the archival data at the World Bank archives um, as, as a follow up to my dissertation research um, that was, um, I should say, funded by um, a fund for the advancement of the discipline grant by the American Sociological Association. So. Um, so that was was kind of really helpful for that research was that it really bridges. It's not a book that's just about what's happening in the country, and it's not a book just about what's happening at the World Bank headquarters, right? Um, so it really attempts to bridge this gap in terms of what the World Bank is saying um, versus what it's doing um, and how that's received kind of at the at the national level. So, so today we've been talking with Sherry Noy about her book. Um, Banking on Health, the World Bank and Health Sector Reform in Latin America. So, Shuri, what are you working on now? Um, so I'm going in a couple um, of different directions. So I think that I mentioned that I have kind of two primary strains of research. One of my strains of research actually looks at um, science and religion and kind of public attitudes. Um, and this is kind of collaborative work that I do. And so I'm expanding that cross-nationally, which is really exciting because um, the research had been kind of on the United States. But um, in this kind of area, there's still a couple of papers um, that I'm working on in terms of how policymakers um, think about models for for healthcare um, reform um, across these these three countries. And then I'm actually expanding to do some collaborative work. So the the book takes um, at its as its analysis level, um, the interaction between governments and um, the World Bank, right? And how this plays out in terms of political um, and health systems and health sector reform at the kind of macro level. And now I'm kind of working on papers that um, examine how the World Bank, I'm, I'm in the early stages, I should say, um, how the World Bank and other international financial institutions are affecting actual health outcomes in Latin America. So focusing on this um, question of maternal um, and infant mortality in particular 
particular, since that's something that um, the World Bank kind of um, pushed out as an important um, kind of policy goal and arena. So great. Well, thank you again so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Thanks. I'm Sarah Patterson. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Sociology. 